Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Clean Tech, a roundup of the week's biggest stories you need to know in climate and clean energy in 15 minutes or less. Today is Friday, November 10th, 2023. I'm Renewable Energy World Editor-in-Chief John Ingle. Zach Budrick from The Hill will be joining us shortly. But for now, I'm joined, as always, by clean tech PR veteran Mike Casey of Tigercom. Mike, it's good to see you after a week off. You too, my friend. I'm. Uh... We were off last week, right? I'm trying to remember. No, we were off two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. But so it's good to see you again this week. <laughs> Are you saying I'm forgettable, John? I think that's I'm what saying you're saying. I am so overwhelmingly busy these days that I all of the days blend together. But tomorrow, the holiday and, and honoring our veterans. So at least we get a little reprieve there. But how's it been going for you? It's awesome. I'll tell you, my son just accepted an early spot to play soccer at your sinus college. So we're really fired up in the Casey household. And I do want to say top of the show, we want to thank all of our veteran listeners for your service to our country. Thanks. We're glad uh, tomorrow's dedicated to you. Yeah, agreed. Well said. Um, we also want to thank all those listeners who have been reaching out with their story recommendations as well as their recommendations for Clean Tecker of the Week. We actually got quite a few this week. I received some. Mike, you got some as well. And remember, you can send both of those to thisweekincleantech at tigercom.us. We'll have a link to that in the episode description as well. And with that, our second official Clean Tecker of the Week. This one comes from a nomination from Saluna CEO John Belazare for a member of his team, Carl Shin, the site GM at Saluna's Project Dorothy. Carl has led Saluna's operations team in the company's flagship Green Data Center, which is helping set the foundation for renewable energy's future. So Project Dorothy has already used and monetized over 4,000 gigawatt hours of green energy that would otherwise have been wasted through curtailment. So congratulations to Carl, our clean techer of the week. What do you think about that one, Mike? I, th- I thank uh, John Belazare for his nomination. Full disclosure, Saluna has been a client of ours in the past, but I, I got to tell you, they do really cool stuff there at Saluna. And um, all right, let's get into these stories, Mr. Engel. Yeah, you got um, the first one. All right, our first story is by Amanda Chu and Claire Bushy from the Financial Times titled, Can America's Southeast Unseat Detroit as the Next Motown of the EV Age? What do you think, John? Yeah, I like this story. So the U.S. Southeast is becoming a hub for foreign auto and battery manufacturers with $70 billion in investments coming since 2010. We're starting to identify that as the battery belt colloquially, which is kind of fun. But in recent years, the IRA has turbocharged that investment since July 2021. More than $9 billion in investment has been announced just for Georgia and Tennessee. The Midwest does have one advantage over the South. Automotive factories are everywhere 
They can retool rather than build from scratch. And the Midwest has 44% of America's auto workers with the South holding only 28%. But the whole EV capital of the world title is still up for grabs. And Detroit could lose its Motor City title if it doesn't step up in the EV game. What do you think, Mike? So first, southern states have done a good job capitalizing on the clean energy transition by attracting automakers to set up shop there. All the while, their elected officials have opposed this transition. That's a spread eagle that would qualify for the Olympic gymnastics team. It is, shall we say, a position intention. But let's hope the reality of this transition helps them look past their ideology. I'll say second, this tax credit is a big draw for foreign investment. And so efforts by some politicians to eliminate risks the source of new job growth right within their states. And I say third is uh, the long-term question, which you've already alluded to, John, which is where will we have the the automotive capital of the U.S. The UAW strike could further push companies to move production to non-Youth and Southern states. But on the other hand, the Midwest is not sitting out this transition and they're doing what they can to bring uh, this new production back to where it was originally at. John, what's story number two? Yeah, this is our favorite segment where it pits uh, clean tech optimist with a uh, clean tech realist. Uh, a second story is from Adele Peters with Fast Company titled, This Wind Turbine Looks Like Nothing You've Ever Seen Before. Mike, I'm sure you're thrilled. Uh, I am thrilled. And John, I'm bracing myself for you to resume your Debbie Downer mode. It's okay if you do. It's okay if you don't. All is welcome here. But um, when our listeners think of a wind turbine, you think of a an iconic huge turbine with blades almost as long as a football field. And that shape is iconic enough. It's actually been in the introduction to the popular TV show, uh, Yellowstone. Um, this tall structure that is these tall structures of blades that are just absolutely enormous because it, they perform better. So along comes this new company, Heirloom Energy, with an entirely different and super intriguing design. It's roughly 80 feet tall. It has 12 33-foot-long blades, and it basically spins a metal hoop, kind of imitating what the blades do to a turbine within a nacelle. Um, I'm no materials engineer, but I'll tell you, if the structure can compete with what's already on the market, this could go a long way to relieving rural Americans' viewshed concerns with uh, wind energy as they know it now. John, what did you think? Yeah, and I'm going to to fly against what you you perceived would be my response. Um, I, I I think it's cool. So I I'm not an engineer either, so I can't you know assess it on its mechanical merits. But they're backed by Breakthrough Energy Ventures, so that's that's something. And and have been able to raise I think twenty thirty million dollars so far, and they're still early in that that cycle. So it's it, it is impressive and. My my thought is, why not? I mean, wind OEMs are a mess right now. Everything's breaking. Supply chains are are um, all over the place globally. And we're seeing that play out in, um, you know, the offshore wind growth in the U.S. And we've talked about it a lot on this show that inflation interest rates, uh, the, the capital intensity of building these projects is uh, so high. So we might as well try. <laughs> That's my take. I don't know if it'll work. I hope it works, but we should try. Um, Mike, what's our third story? So story number three is one from the Wall Street Journal's Climate Energy Newsletter. It's written by Ed Ballard titled, Who Will Pay for All the Carbon Removal? John, your thoughts? Yeah, so the carbon removal industry needs financing, but the current level of contributions from individuals and a handful of corporations is insufficient to meet the scale of the problem. And at this point, it still takes hundreds of dollars to remove just one ton of carbon. So keep that in mind. 
But governments are looking into how they can accelerate the industry's scaling. The IRA has a tax break for carbon removal. The Biden admin just announced $1.2 billion for carbon removal hubs in Texas and Louisiana. Policymakers will have to consider three important questions as they get into supporting these markets, though. Which carbon removal credits should they support? how to measure the benefits of carbon removal credits, and how can companies meet their carbon pollution goals by funding carbon removal? Still a lot of unanswered questions here, Mike. We've had a reason to get familiar with carbon removal recently. And as it's been explained to us, you have to get the economics done at the smokestack before you can go to direct air capture. I think, as Ed notes in the story, paying companies like Climeworks, hundreds or thousands or even millions of dollars, are not going to make a dent in the problem. That's his quote. But as Jim Hansen has painfully reminded us, the planetary hour has grown light enough that most experts say direct air capture has got to play a role in getting us out of this mess. And, you know, we're talking about the hardest 20% of carbon pollution we've got to go after. So if net zero is our goal, this is going to have to be part of the portfolio. And out to the legions of naysayers who, uh, many of whom pay me visits on LinkedIn, I'll quote Confucius, those who say something is impossible should not interrupt those who are doing it. So if we want direct air capture in the same, in the position, uh, to help us get decarbonized, we're going to have to start investing in it now. John, what's our fourth story? Mike quotes Confucius, you have to drink. I think that's a new theme of uh, this week in <laughs> clean tech. Uh, our fourth story comes from Rebecca Lieber from Vox titled, How the Fossil Fuel Lobby Weaponized Julia Child's Gas Stove. Mike, thoughts? Oh, boy. Where do you start? Uh, this story uses Julia Child as an example of how, for decades, the gas industry has been working expert opinion toward entrenching their interests. I mean, this is just, I think, the latest and, you know, tactically brilliant part of where incumbent industries weaponize disinformation and government influence peddling to manage market threats. So if you get your pants beat off in the marketplace, run to government to bail you out and run to propaganda to help you do that. And it's just, it's the same sort of tobacco industry playbook. It's just an updated version. And there's no getting around that when you are hovering over a gas stove, like we do in my house, and you don't have the fan on, you're basically putting your face above a tailpipe from a car. That's, that's basically the, the impact. So, you know, we'll see if um, propaganda wins out over reality. It usually loses, but it loses too slowly. John, what do you think about this one? I often think about like what would be the middle school uh, yearbook last page where they they try to assess what happened in the year. And there's like artists who hit number one and the big uh, divisive topics like is this dress blue or is it gold? Will the gas stove be in the yearbooks this year? Because I feel like that was a very, uh, <laughs> very important flashpoint in the, in the discourse for uh, for the United States this year. But in a certain sense, this is more of an air pollution problem than necessarily a climate problem. You know, as you alluded to, gas stoves are only 0.1% of U.S. carbon pollution. One study this year found gas stove pollution causes 12.7% of childhood asthma. I'll, I'll kind of leave it there, Mike. I think you, you covered the story well. But um, just, just to really square what we're talking about here, I think, is the most important thing when it comes to the, the gas stove debate. Mike, what's yep. our last one? Our last one is by Zach Budrick, and he's going to join us now. He's from The Hill, and his story is titled, Mainers Vote Down Ballot Measure to Create Consumer-Owned Utility. Hey, Zach, thanks for joining us. For people who haven't read the piece, what's what would you say is the biggest takeaway for our listeners? Sure. Well, uh, the uh, I guess 
a little, so I guess money goes a long way is what the people who are in favor of this would tell you, because as they told me a lot, as they told me uh, fairly frequently, they were outspent uh, 37 to one by uh, opponents, <clears throat> excuse me, opponents of this ballot initiative, which would have uh, converted the investor owned electric utilities. There are two of them in the state to a single co-op. Zach, I feel like generally the the talking point, at least in our industry circles, is that public power is typically more efficient, usually more cost effective, want has more of the consumer um, a, a agenda front of mind, and that the, mm -hmm. the big bad IOU doesn't want that. That is there anything we can take from this result as what the general public feels about their utilities and and the grid in general, I, I, I try to square it a little bit with the Texas vote that happened the same day of, you know, bankrolling gas plants to the tune of billions of dollars. So I, I'm trying to understand what do people think of this industry? I, I still don't get it. You know, my sense is that people may really hate something that they rely on, but uh, hate the idea of, uh, you know, something new that they have no familiarity with more. Mm -hmm. I think it's almost analogous to how unpopular the the Affordable Care Act was the first couple of years, particularly when uh, some people uh, lost their uh, insurance coverage. Uh, I think that, you know, I, I think that this was the message that the anti-ballot initiative side was putting forward, and I would guess it registered with some people that even if you hate your utility, and I don't th think that that's an uncommon perspective, I think a lot of people uh, were sort of moved by the argument, we have no idea what's going to happen uh, with this uh, this new thing that's completely unknown, ter unknown territory. God only knows how much money and time it will take before it's even up and running, and I think that I think that that resonated with even people who hate the status quo. Zach, what kind of tactics did you did your reporting turn up that the utility industry was using to beat back this measure? Sure, as I said, a lot of uh, sort of uh, ominous graphs about the cost of about the cost of this. There's sort of like the ingrained uh, American fear of bureaucrats. Uh, uh, whether that's logical or not, uh, this idea came up a lot that because the board of the co-op would be elected, uh, it would be a popularity contest rather than based on whether or not the people running it had any experience uh, and practical knowledge of running a grid. Well, that sounds a lot like the uh, the Texas ERCOT board uh, after yeah. Abbott, Abbott did the... Um did the wipeout because we don't want experts no. running it. We want uh, we want political cronies running it. Yeah, I think that that was the, you know, I can't speak to, it's a counterfactual whether or not that would have been the case here, but I think that that was definitely the specter that was raised by opponents. Well, John, we're about out of time. I want to thank our awesome producer, Brian Mendez, and for Claire, the Claire Factor Queer, and Alex Style Guide Peterson for bringing us these stories. We really appreciate it. Thanks to um, Zach for joining us for this episode. And, John, I'll see you next week. Yeah, and a reminder to our listeners, please subscribe, give us feedback, and share those story recommendations. 
um, as well as This Week in Clean Tech nominations. So you can read all of the articles we discussed this week by clicking the links in the episode description. And on Monday's episode of the Factor This podcast, a friend of Mike Casey's, George Hirschman, will be joining us from Solve Energy to talk about um, exiting his chairmanship with CF, four years of, of tumult, I think is the best way to describe COVID, oxen, supply chain, you name it, and of course, the IRA. So a lot to take away from that. And please check that out on Monday. Mike, I'll see you next week. Good seeing you, sir. Take care. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the Interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.